bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the, little, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Thus ends the reading of God's inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This is a text about following Jesus. And if we are to follow Jesus, we see that there is a certain type of faith that we must have. In this text, I think it shows us that, that it's a faith that is a completely dependent faith. It's a faith that's a, a completely committed faith. And finally, it's a faith that's a completely God-given faith. That would be our outline, essentially, if we're going to look at it. Those three things, a completely dependent, completely committed, and completely God-given faith. So first, with a completely dependent faith, a few weeks ago, we, we talked a little bit about how it was that, that in the ancient world, little children were seen as being of little to no value. This week in my studies, I came across a letter that was written June 17th, 1 BC, all right? 
Uh, it was from a man whose name was Hilarion, which uh, ironically means cheerful, right? In our words, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, right? It's that same word, Hilarion. So that was his name, you know? So, so this guy named Cheerful is writing to his wife, whose name was Alice. She was expecting a child, and he wrote to her, if it's a male child, allow it. If it is a female, cast it out. Yeah, cheerful guy. Um, but that's the uh, mindset that often pervaded the ancient world. Right? Children were not seen of great value. They weren't as sentimental toward them as we are today. And, and it was not illegal to do such a thing. You could just cast a child out. They were seen as unimportant and little more than an annoyance. And we see here in verse 13 that they were bringing the children to Jesus that he might touch them. We're helped a little bit by the other gospel authors in this. We, we see in Luke 18, 15 that, that many of these children, perhaps even most of them, were actually infants, little babies. So when it talks about children, we're talking about tiny babies. Matthew tells us in Matthew 19, 13 that, that when it, we see here in Mark that, that they wanted Jesus to touch their babies, that what they were looking for was that he might lay their, his hands on them and pray for them. You see, it's, it's kind of a, a blessing that they are seeking. Uh, it's, it's that he might confer this blessing on them as was the, the normal habit of a rabbi in that day. Right? There, there's this history that, that went on of, of placing hands on heads and have that be a, a means of conveying something, of, of transferring something. Uh, it goes all the way back to the patriarchs, right? You know, the patriarchs, before they would die, they would gather their, their sons before them and, and, and place a hand upon the head and, and convey a blessing to them. Uh, it's similar to what we see in Leviticus 16, where, where there's instructions given to Aaron and the priests. It says that, that when he's made an end of atoning to the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness." The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That's where we get our, our term escape goat, right? Because what's happening there is the priest puts his hands on the goat and transfers the sins of the people onto that goat. They send it off into a desolate place, carrying away their sins as it were. It's the thing we do here when we have an ordination, whether it's the ordination of a pastor or of elders or of deacons, right? We, we place hands on them because we are, are conferring that responsibility to them. And so that's what the people were seeking for their little babies as they brought them to Jesus. They wanted him to put his hand on their head and to give a blessing so that they might be blessed of him. And the disciples rebuked them. Why would the disciples 
rebuke them? Well, I, I think they probably thought that Jesus was too important, too busy for such trivial matters as this. I mean, he's, he's a teacher, and he's going to teach people so that they can learn things, and, and, and they have to be able to understand the things that he's teaching so that they can learn them. And, and, and when Jesus saw this, we see in verse 14, he was indignant, not disappointed, not just disagreeing, but indignant. He thought this was terrible that the disciples were rebuking the people. And he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Right? The disciples are thinking, these, these, Jesus, these, these babies, they can't be committed followers of you. They can't, they can't pray a prayer. They can't make a commitment. They can't walk the aisle. They can't do all the things that we think that they might need to do in order to come into the fold, in order to be your people, in order to be part of the children of God. But we need to understand it's not a lack of intellectual ability that keeps us away from Jesus. What keeps us away from Jesus is our sin. And we all share in that, from the very youngest to the very oldest. The only way that we can overcome that is through the blessing of Jesus as he rests his gracious hand upon us. You see, we, we have every bit as much an obstacle between us and Jesus as that newborn child has and so the parents of these children were, were trusting in Jesus and they brought their children to him. And he says of these children of believers, these baby children of believers, these infant children of believers, he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom, God's sovereign reign and rule, his, his majesty and his his rule over his people, and along with that, the blessings that he imparts to his people. It will one day flower into, into its whole expression in the new heavens and in the new earth, but for today, it is to exist in kernel form in the church. Right? We are, as the people of God, the, the vanguard of his kingdom. And Jesus says that these Children, these little baby children, are part of his kingdom. In fact, he goes beyond that and he says they are the exemplars of his kingdom. He doesn't say they're just, just one tiny part. Right? We see here, truly, I say to you, in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, a little child will enter it. How is that possible? Is it because, it's, I got it, I've got it. It's probably because, you know, little babies are, are innocent, right? That's what he's saying. They're innocent, and so we have to come to the kingdom pure and innocent. And that way, no, that's not what he's saying. Right? Remember that, that even before we are born, the psalmist tells us even in the womb, we are conceived in sin. We are sinners before we've ever taken a breath. There is no purity, no, no innocence in us. What I think Jesus means by pointing to these children is that they are completely dependent, wholly dependent on another. 
they realize that they can do nothing for themselves. They can't achieve taking care of themselves. And so Jesus takes them in his arms and blesses them, leaving, laying his hands on them. He, he received them. He took them into his embrace. He blessed them. The language suggests the blessings of, of the covenant will be theirs. Right? And so this informs us that the children of the covenant, those children of believers who are members of the covenant community, not just little heathens that, that need to be evangelized, but rather, in a very real sense, little Christians that need to be discipled, that need to be encouraged, that need to be brought up in the faith. Ideally, they will never remember a day when they did not believe that Jesus was their Savior. And that's why we teach our littlest ones to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. That's why we teach them to pray, our Father. And that's why we are overjoyed to have them in our midst and to count them as members of the body of Christ. Because they are received and blessed by Jesus. Don't we all want that? Don't you want to be received and blessed by Jesus? Do you want to be similarly blessed by him? Do you want to have his hand rest gently upon your head? Do you, do you want to feel his warm embrace enveloping you? If so, then come to him like a little child. Come to him fully reliant upon him, resting in his arms, realizing that you can do nothing to earn your place there, nothing to save yourself, realizing that, that it is all of unbounded grace and unfathomable love. Come to him with a completely dependent faith. Come to him also with a completely committed faith. Right, when I say completely committed, I mean one that is focused and committed to him alone. Right? It's, it's like when we get married. Right? I married Aaron and I didn't say I'm committed to you and, and to whoever else I marry along the way. <laughs> right? No, it's I'm committed to you. And so it is with our commitment to Jesus. We should be single-heartedly and single-mindedly committed to him in our faith. Some people split this passage that we're looking at today up into two sermons. They'll, they'll look at you know, this first part about the little children, bringing them to him, and, and then they'll move on to a second sermon here. I think that they go together. It's very intentional that they're here together. I think, I think the Lord in his, his providence and in his wisdom has, has deigned it to be that this was very likely the same day. And right after this lesson has been learned about these, these little children being brought to him, these little children who can accomplish nothing, who are fully dependent upon him, we see here Jesus is setting out on his journey, likely leaving the place where these little children had been brought to him. And, and we see a, a man comes up to him again, uh, we see in Matthew that this man was young. We learn from Luke that he was a ruler, likely one of the synagogue rulers. All three of the gospel writers there tell us that he was a man of means, a man of wealth. And so we know this man by taking this composite picture of these three as the rich, young ruler. 
And the rich young ruler comes to him. He kneels before him and he asks a question of him. And he seems to be sincere. It seems by all rights that he is sincere here in this question. He asks, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's a category confusion that should jump out at us right here. Of course, what must I do to inherit? Of course, we don't do anything to inherit, do we? we? We simply are a member of the family. That's how you inherit something, right? You, you are a member of the family. You did nothing to become a member of the family. You are a member simply because your parents are your parents, right? And then you inherit from them by virtue of that status. And so Jesus tells him something here. He says, you know the commandments and list them, don't murder, adultery, steal, false witness, defraud, honor your father and mother, these things. All of these things which are from the second table of the law. You know, the law, the Ten Commandments, split up into kind of two tables, one that deals with how we love God and then one that deals with how we love our neighbor. These are all dealing with how we love our neighbor. And, and the man says to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. I think he's being sincere here. I think he really believes this to be true. By societal standards, perhaps he really had been fairly good. But societal standards are not the standards by which God judges. He tells us to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And do you get the irony of what he's communicating here? Right? What, what did Jesus just said to him here in verse 18, when he had come up to him, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And now the man comes to him and says, what do I need to do? Jesus says, do that. He says, yeah, I've done all that, right? In essence, Jesus is saying, no one is good but God. And the man says, yeah, and me too. <laughs> he believes he's good enough. He believes he's measured up. Right? But he doesn't realize that the law is meant to be, among other things, a mirror that we look at so that it might show us our sin. Many times in the morning when I'm getting ready, I, I don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror looking at myself. Okay? I, I, I've had many occasions because of this that uh, I've gone to work and my collar's been folded over wrong or maybe I've had some toothpaste on my face. I actually had one time I showed up with two different shoes. They didn't match. Uh, I probably should spend more time in front of the mirror looking and just kind of making sure I'm put together. In the same way, this man needs to look into the mirror of the law a little more intently. Right? It is supposed to be this mirror that shows us how spiritually disheveled we are. This man is just taking a superficial glance and saying, yep, I think I got that. I'm good. He needs to realize how very far short he's fallen. That, that as Romans 3 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As 1 John chapter 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? Jesus could have been indignant again at this point. Right? Uh, 
you can imagine, in fact, we don't need to imagine, often with the Pharisees, right, if this is one of the Pharisees who came to him and said, yeah, we've got this, Jesus, we've followed the law, we know it all. Oftentimes Jesus was indignant with them when they said something like that. But Jesus isn't indignant here. It's very interesting what he does. It says instead, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And we're caused to stop there for a second and think about that. In what way does Jesus love him? Now, now we tend to think of love as an emotion, right? It's something we feel in our heart, right? I'll say that again to Aaron. I'll say, I love you. And I'm talking about what I feel in my heart. But, but when the Bible talks about love, more than an emotion, more than a feeling, what the Bible is talking about is action, something that we do, something that, that takes place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus do here that is loving? And it's what he says to him. He is loving him in that he is willing to speak the hard truth to him. Sometimes we just want people to tell us what we want to hear, don't we? We just want them to tell us that we're good and everything's fine and we're, we're, we're all we need to be and everything is okay with us. But this does us no good if growth is our goal, right? And Jesus loves the man here by telling him not what he needs to hear or not what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear, right? For as Proverbs tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A good friend will tell you what you need to hear out of love. They will tell you what you need to hear, even if it wounds you. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some people that seem all too ready to wound you with their words, right? They, they, I think we've all known those people who are just looking for the opportunity to tell you that you are wrong. And they, by extension, are right, of course, right? That, that, that they're looking for that opportunity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a person who, who doesn't want to say something, who doesn't want to hurt you, who doesn't want to cause you pain, but who realizes that they must. They must share this truth with you for your own well-being, even though it's going to wound you, even though it might cause you to be angry with them, even though you might in turn abandon them, even though they might, as a result, be wounded. They will share with you the truth that you need to hear because that is love. That is what Jesus does here, and he says you lack one thing. And we expect him to say, if we are theologians at all, you lack one thing. You lack faith, right? Because that's how we're saved. We all know that's how we inherit eternal life if we've read our Bible at all, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We've got that down. We're good Presbyterians. We understand that, that that's what Jesus should say here. But shockingly, he does not. Instead, he says, go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, in fairness to Jesus, and we should always be fair to Jesus, of course, what he is saying, in essence, is you need to have faith. right? Because what is faith but fully trusting in Jesus? Right? We've already talked about that. It's fully trusting in him, not depending upon anything else, relying on him and not ourselves, relying on him and not our gifts, not our, our, our wealth, not our, our deeds, not anything that we have. It's trusting alone 
in him, that he will provide everything we need, not just here now, but eternal life. He says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he says to the rich young ruler, turn your back on all that you have and come follow me. That's what you need. You need to follow me. Wholeheartedly follow me. Now, it's not a universal rule that all people need to give away all that we have to the poor and and live poverty-stricken lives. But that said, the Bible does say a lot about money, doesn't it? Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we see in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because he has said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. In 1 Timothy He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is why Jesus says this to the rich young ruler, because he knows his heart. He knows his heart. He knows that within his heart is a devotion to money. He knows that he loves his money. He's committed to his money. And he knows that you cannot have two masters, right? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God in money. He knew that it was wealth that was the one thing that was keeping him from truly following Jesus. Remember back in Mark 8? Or maybe it was Mark 9. I think it was Mark 9 where he called the crowd to himself. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The love of money was in this man's heart and he was not anxious to deny himself. And so disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What a heartbreaking sentence. To be so close to be so close to what he needed. But to miss Jesus because he did not have a completely committed faith. Well, the third thing that we need is a completely God-given faith. Jesus looked around, said to his disciples how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words. We have to realize that the thought was that that, that, you know, if a, somebody was rich, that's because God had blessed them. And if God had blessed them, well, that must be because they're really good people. And if they're really good people, then they're good to go, right? But the reality is that God is sovereign over all things. And at the same time, we live in a broken world. Things don't always go the way they should in our perspective. And Jesus wants to teach them that that's not the way it works. Jesus says to them again, children, a lovingly tender address. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, and if you've been 
around for a while, if you've heard somebody preach on this passage before, it's quite possible that you've heard it said that this idea of the the eye of the needle and a camel going through it. Obviously, a camel can't fit through the eye of the needle. And, and somebody might have told you somewhere along the way that, that what it's really talking about is there was this gate in Jerusalem. There's this gate that was, was kind of a back gate. It was kind of secluded. It was this, a, a, a small gate. And, and in order for a camel to get in through this gate that was called the eye of the needle, uh, the, the camel had to kneel down and they had to unburden it of all the things that it was carrying, all of its possessions that were on it. And only then with it kneeled down could they kind of push it through and barely get it through. And some people say that that's really what it's talking about here. You see, you have to unburden yourself of all the possessions you have and you have to kneel before Jesus and that's what it means. But they are wrong. This idea didn't come up anywhere until the 9th or 10th century. Uh, There's no archaeological evidence for it. It's just totally fabricated. Others have said, well, well, what's going on here is, is this word that's been translated as camel actually is a different word in the Aramaic. It's just one, one letter different in the Greek, and, and somebody going from the Aramaic to the Greek messed up, and, and, and the one letter different, as we take it, it's not camel, it actually is rope, right? It's talking about a rope, and you can see how putting a rope through the eye of the needle, well, that's not really going to work either, but I guess if you pulled each thread of the rope out, you know, you could put it through. You could, again, a lot of work would go into it. It would be really hard. But that's not what it's saying either. Don't try to explain away what God is trying to tell us here, right? The disciples are marveling at it as we see that they are exceedingly astonished. They say to him, then who can be saved? They can't believe this because this is impossible. In fact, Jesus looks at them and he says, With man, it is impossible. He doesn't say, yeah, it's really difficult. It takes a lot of work. you got to do a lot of things. you got to take care of this, take care of that, take care of that, and only then will it work out. No, he says it's impossible. You can't do it. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, he's saying there's no way that we can get ourselves into the kingdom. There's nothing we can do. There's no faith that we can muster up. There's no work that we can do. There's no no level that we can attain. There's nothing that will enable us to get into the kingdom that begins with us. It must come from God. He must give it to us. It must be a God-given faith. But Peter still doesn't get it. He says to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. He says, we did it. We gave up everything like you told that guy to do. So, so we're good now, right, Jesus? We've, we've earned it. We're good. He says, no, Peter, 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 Peter. You, you just don't listen. But I'll tell you this. There is great blessing in giving up things for the Lord. There is great blessing in it. You don't earn your salvation. But when you do this in response to the great gift of God's grace. No house or family members that have been left for my sake and for the gospel will go unrewarded. He says, you will receive hundredfold of these in the present life. And after that, eternal life. He says, it's not just fire insurance. Right? This Faith that God gives us is not just faith that gets us out of hell. It is faith for today. It is faith for how we live our lives today and is full of blessing. It's not just for the hereafter, 
persecutions will come with it, but it is worth it. And even if we are put to the end of the line, even if we are, are made to be last, do not worry, because as he says at the end, many who are first will be last and the last first. There is this paradigm shift. And it's a shift in following Jesus, isn't it? He who was God incarnate, who still is God incarnate, who always has been God incarnate, and even so came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The rich young ruler thought he could be first by doing the most. But Jesus said it's not by doing the most that you get to be first. It's by trusting in him and being a servant as he has. And we can only do this by the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There are many like the rich young ruler who will come and kneel before Jesus. They will pray. They will come to church every week. They will sing his praises. They will call him good teacher. They will seek to follow his moral and ethical teachings. They will live life that most, in such a way that most people will probably call them good. But they don't give their lives to him completely. They don't trust him completely. They, they think that somehow they can do something to secure their place before God. Perhaps you are one of these people. If indeed you are one of these then you need to know this today. Listen, please. All of your kneeling before Jesus, all of your good words about Jesus, all of your good deeds before Jesus will still leave you dead in your sins. If you're not willing to forsake any merit that is in them and fully depend upon him, like a little child with outstretched arms, being received into his gracious blessing arms. Receiving his blessing, not because of anything you've done, but solely because of his grace. As the hymnist put it, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If that is your faith, such a completely dependent faith, such a completely committed faith, such a completely God-given faith, then Jesus invites you to his table. He invites you to dine with him, to not only dine with him, but to dine of him, to partake of his very body and his very blood, that you might be united with him. Before we do that, we proclaim that this is indeed our faith, and we do so in the words of the Apostles' Creed. You'll find it printed in your bulletin as a confession of faith today. We read this Apostles' Creed, these words that have been proclaimed by Christians for centuries upon centuries. And I ask you now, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul warns us that, that we ought not come to the table in an unworthy manner. And sometimes that might scare us away. But I love what John Calvin has to say as he explains this. He says, this is the worthiness, the best and only kind we can bring to God to offer our vileness and our unworthiness to him so that in his mercy we may be taken as worthy, to despair in ourselves so that we may be lifted up by him, to accuse ourselves so that we may be justified by him. He continues, it is a sacrament ordained not for the perfect, but for the weak and feeble to awaken, arouse, stimulate, and exercise the feeling of faith and love, indeed, to correct the defect of both. If that's what you long for, if that's what you hunger for, if Jesus is the one you trust, he invites you to come today. Will you pray with me? Lord, help us to see you in this meal. Help us to know that we truly are proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Help us to have our faith strengthened as we partake in faith of your body and your blood given for us. We ask it in Jesus' name.